Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us both online and in person. I'm not sure where I'm looking for online, but somewhere in here uh, for today's book launch event. My name's Peter Allen. I'm a reader in comparative politics here in Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies at the University of Bath. And today we're here to launch uh, Making Gender Salient. From Gender Quota Laws to Policy, which is uh, the new and first book from Dr. Anna Catalano Weeks, which is published by Cambridge University Press and is available in all good bookshops now. And there are flyers at the back, which is something that I'm going to talk about a bit more in a second, um, if you wanted a discounted copy. So do gender quota laws, policies that mandate women's inclusion on parties, candidate slates, affect policy outcomes? Making gender salient tackles this crucial question by offering a new theory to understand when and how gender quotas impact policy. Drawing on cross-national data from high-income democracies and a mixed methods research design, this book from Anna argues that quotas lead to policy change for issues characterized by a gender gap in preferences, especially if these issues deviate from the usual left-right party policy divide. It focuses on one such issue, work family policies, and finds that quotas shift work family policies in the direction of gender equality. So today we're going to hear from Anna, who is the author of the book and a senior lecturer here at university, who will present a brief outline of the book and its ideas. And following that, we're going to be joined, hopefully dependent on uh, the fantastic British Rail Services, uh, Professor Rosie Campbell who is Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and Professor of Politics there as well. And Rosie's going to offer um, some thoughts and feedback. After that, we're going to open it up to everyone here and at home for questions and discussion. Some quick housekeeping before we begin. First of all, if you're on social media, please do tag us at Uni of Bath IPR. That's Uni of Bath IPR. If you're watching from home, please uh, note that your cameras and microphones are going to be switched off. If you have a question, please submit it via the Q&A function, which is being monitored. And we'll aim to respond to all questions towards the end of today's session. Finally, this session is being recorded. So filming and photography is taking place. If you are in the witness protection program, this is your cue. Subject to no te technical difficulties, the session will be available online as a podcast and video later. There are two more things. Sorry, there's actually quite a lot of housekeeping, I lied. If you're in person here today, I'd like to, uh, we'd like to have some discount flyers available at the back. So those are there, please help yourself. And finally, and more importantly, we're also uh, delighted to be joined by the artist who designed the book cover, Hazel McCubrey, and who has art available for sale at the back. If you're watching online, we're going to send you the PDF flyer for a book discount via email, as well as links to Hazel's website and socials. And finally, another finally, if you're with us here in person today, please do join us after the launch for some lunch. It's a good sentence and refreshments where I'm sure we can continue those discussions. A lunch launch, as it were. Okay, thank you all again for joining us. And now I'm going to hand over to Anna. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you to the IPR for putting this launch on, uh, to Hazel for coming, and we hope Rosie makes it in time as well. Um, so I'm here to talk today about uh, some of the key findings from my new book, Making Gender Salient, uh, which is about the policy impact of gender quota laws. Sorry, my clicker is not working. 
There we go. Okay, so what are gender quota laws? Gender quota laws are laws or sometimes constitutional provisions which require political parties um, to include a certain percentage of women among their candidate lists. Um, and as you can see from the table here, um, these laws are really, really popular. Since 1991, when Argentina passed the first such quota law, at least 15 countries in each subsequent decade have passed one of these gender quota laws. And more and more countries are considering them today, including here in the UK, uh, Wales, which has a gender quota reform as part of its package um, of broader reforms for the parliamentary uh, assembly. Now, in the debate about quota laws um, in various countries, um, one of the arguments that often comes up is that quotas will lead to not only added numbers of women in parliaments, but also the increased representation of a certain set of women's interests. So I'm going to show you um, a few of the arguments that um, are for and against this, this type of um, idea here from my interviews in Belgium. So this is a quote from the uh, Belgian Senator Sabine de Bethune, who's a, a Christian Democrat. And she told me when we sat down in 2013 that my feeling is that more women in politics has broadened the political agenda, more things became politics. And she gives the example of childcare in particular. She said that when I first came in and we were only three or four women in a committee of, of 60, the men said, you know, what is this? And now we've changed it. It's one of the biggest budget points. Um, a colleague of hers, who's a, a social Democrat, Renat Landoit, agreed in an interview. He told me that um, since the quota law, the debates have changed. The difference between women and men that we didn't see as men, um, women have experienced it, and so they could better point out the difficulties. However, not everyone agrees that quotas have made such a difference in the Belgian case. So this is a quote from the feminist activist, Hedwige Piman-Poulet, who founded the University for Women in Brussels. And she told me she was disappointed with the lack of change, the lack of progress since the quota law in Belgium, really pointing to the idea that political parties matter much more than gender. And so she said, the woman who's placed on the list because of a quota, does she represent women's interests or does she represent the political party? Um, similarly, uh, a French social democrat, uh, Yvonne Mayor, brings up this idea of political party being uh, a much more stronger form of identity than gender in this context. And he gives the example of the Social Affairs Committee, um, which he was president of in the parliament. He says what he sees there is really uh, much more difference between left and right than between men and women. And she, he gives the example of four women from the NVA, the Nationalist Party in Belgium, who he says are on the extreme right, strongly against social measures. So these quotations illustrate um, a difference that's not clearly defined by gender or by political party in the, in the notion of whether quotas will actually lead to policy change. So this is the real focus and the motivation of this book, trying to understand this question of do gender quota laws lead to policy change for women? And specifically, when, under what conditions might quota laws lead to change and how, through which mechanisms do quotas change policy? And so um, the main argument of the book has two main parts focusing on these when and how aspects separately. So I'll start with the when part first. Um, I argue that two key factors will shape the likelihood that a group's interests will be represented in politics regardless of a quota law. So some, issue, some interests might be represented um, through the normal lines of party competition. And I argue that it's those interests that, that aren't represented um, through politics um, in, in the normal lines of party competition that descriptive representatives and quota laws are likely to make um, a, an especial difference on. 
Um, so this, the first factor is group status. So um, it should come as no surprise to anyone here that in the context I am looking at in uh, high income OECD democracies, politics is still dominated by wealthy white men um, and other groups face higher barriers to entry in politics. And so there's certainly um, a very large and robust literature from gender and politics, which shows that women face higher barriers to entry, um, which can be related to um, higher costs of running. So comparative lack of, of time, resources, differences in political socialization um, from, from when children are growing up and who's taught to believe that politics is something that they do. Um, or discrimination of various forms, which doesn't have to be outright, but can be down to networks um, or can be down to statistical discrimination. Statistical discrimination. <clears throat> so this matters, um, not just for women, but for other social groups as well, for people from the working class, for um, ethnic minorities, for LGBTQA plus um, people. Um, because people tend to be biased towards their own interests and politicians are no exception to that as the literature from political economy and political theory tells us that politicians are likely to be influenced by their own lived experiences and their own priorities as well. So when women and other groups face higher barriers to entry, they, they simply have less opportunity to put the, their own interests on the agenda in the same way as other groups. Now I argue that this is likely to matter, especially for those issues that fall off the main left-right dimension in society. And by this, I mean, um, in, again, in the uh, context of advanced democracies, typically a class-based dimension that also now incorporates more social issues um, as well. So um, if a group that uh, faces high barriers to entry in politics has a demand that falls along the left-right dimension, say, for example, more social spending, which falls very clearly on the class-based dimension, um, then this issue is likely to be taken up by political parties anyway. And um, these groups can simply vote for the political parties that represent their interests. So we can think here about the literature on women's suffrage and the link between women's suffrage and the growth of the welfare state, for example. But if the issue um, demand of a group that, that lacks similar access to politics falls off the main left-right dimension, then parties have reasons to avoid um, discussing these issues. And that's there are several reasons for this. The first is that by definition, um, these issues are cross-cutting. So they're likely to divide constituencies within political parties. So we can think here of men and women um, disagreeing on the need to prioritize something like the gender pay gap. Um, parties then have reasons to avoid this issue um, because it might exacerbate tensions within the political party. And because um, we know that it, from other literature that it's better for political parties to focus on issues that they're perceived to, to do well on already. So parties can't address every single issue. They would do well to focus on the issues that, they're, they, uh, that they own um, and kind of equivocate on these other peripheral issues. And the final reason that parties might avoid these issues is that um, because they are still tend to be dominated by white wealthy men, they may simply not recognize that these issues can offer significant electoral opportunity um, and, for example, women's votes. Um, so research by Kimberly Morgan points to this as a potential explanation for why these peripheral issues sometimes um, go un underrepresented in politics. And so for these reasons, I make the case that gender quotas and associated um, increases in, in the numbers of women in politics are likely to matter, especially for cross-cutting issues that are characterized by um, gender gaps and preferences. 
which uh, Jenny Mansbridge calls uncrystallized interests. Um, so that means they're kind of peripheral to the party agenda. Parties are not organized in clear and opposing positions around these issues. Work family policies um, fit both of these characteristics. They're characterized by a gender gap in preferences, um, and this gap in preferences persists across political party lines. So here um, we're looking at data from the International Social Survey Program. Um, I spend chapter three of the book looking at gender gaps in policy preferences. And so um, this is data from 1985 to 2012. It pools 19 advanced democracies. And so the gender gaps you, you observe here, so the share of women who support the policy minus the share of men who support it, um, the, the point uh, indicates the size of the gender gap and we have some confidence intervals around that point. And in line with a lot of previous literature, um, I find that women do prefer more spending on a number of issues like healthcare, unemployment, retirement. They prefer the government to do more about reducing inequality, providing a job. All of these gender gaps are in the order of four to six percentage points. Um, however, the largest gender gaps that I report are about issues related to mothers working. So this question at the top is, a preschool child will suffer if his or her mother works. Women are much more likely to disagree with that statement compared to men. Um, similarly, a working mother can have just as warm a relationship with her child. Uh, and a job is okay, but women really prefer home and family. Again, women are much more likely to disagree with that statement compared to men. So these gender gaps are in the order of 8 to 10 percentage points. They are um, actually growing over time. So the good news is that both men and women are getting more progressive on these issues, but um, women's attitudes are changing at a faster rate than men's. So that means the gender gaps are actually increasing over time. And this is um, also true, particularly if we look among highly educated uh, respondents. So if we look at respondents who have at least a bachelor's degree or, or higher, the gender gaps increase to something like 15 percentage points. Um, importantly, these gender gaps also cut across party lines. So here we're looking at um, gender gaps in that question about a preschool child will suffer if his or her mother works, um, which are grouped by respondents who say they vote for far left, center left, center right, or far right parties. And as we'd expect, we see um, the highest level of disagreement with, from respondents who vote for left-wing parties, but we still see significant and sizable gender gaps in the order of six to eight percentage points among those who vote for center or even far right parties. And again, these gender gaps increase when we look at highly educated respondents on the right. So for this reason, um, I focused on this particular um, outcome, maternal employment and, and related work family policies for the sake of the book. Now, we have this really nice data from the ISSP, which establishes these gender gaps and shows that they um, persist and even grow over time. But we have uh, less data on specific work family policies like investment in childcare um, or preferences towards well-paid shared parental leave. Um, however, luckily we have uh, a growing line of research uh, from public policy, which shows a consensus on how different work family policies relate to maternal employment. And the consensus from that literature is increasingly that if the goal is to increase equality in the labor force and also at home, then the policies we should be focusing on are investment in childcare, um, so the state can take on more of the care work and women have therefore more time to engage in paid labor and shared parental leave, particularly with a father specific focus that encourages both um, it's linked to both maternal employment, women uh, are more connected to the labor force, and it's also linked to fathers spending more time at home. Now, um, 
not all work family policies are designed to, uh, with the goal of gender equality or um, increasing women's participation in the labor force. Conversely, family allowances or child benefits are cash transfers, which were originally, especially when they were first designed, intended to shore up male breadwinner models and allow women to stay at home. So they don't encourage and they actually might hinder uh, women's employment. Similarly, long maternity only leaves, particularly long leaves that are um, not very well paid, um, also tend to break women's ties to the labor force uh, and might hinder women's employment. And so because of this, the main expectations uh, for the book are that I expect that quotas will shift work family policies in the direction of women's preferences for maternal employment. And that means more political party attention and actually more government um, spending and, and implementation of policies that are related to childcare and shared parental and paternity leave. Uh, conversely, I expect quotas to reduce attention and investment in family allowances or child benefits, those cash transfers I was talking about, and maternity only leave. I also um, don't expect quotas to lead to significant changes in policies that are really well aligned with the main left-right dimension in society, like overall social spending or like spending on healthcare, um, because in fact, parties may have already shifted to accommodate these concerns um, previously in history. Okay, so now I'm getting to the second part of the theory, which is how quotas change policies. Uh, and there are three main mechanisms that I talk about in the book, factions, ministers, and issue salience. And here it's worth saying that um, the context that I focus on for the book of um, Western Europe and, and other high income advanced democracies is a hard test for the idea that quotas and more women will make a difference because a lot of these countries are parliamentary democracies. And in that context, um, Policymaking is typically very institutionalized. It's determined by governments. Often it's hashed out in coalition agreements. So it's not that I expect um, that quotas are gonna lead to more women in parliament. They're gonna get together across party lines, propose legislation in parliament to change policies. But instead, these, two these first two mechanisms both depend on more women in, in parties, but they act through um, me mechanisms of factions and ministers instead. So. The idea for factions is that women um, have added strength with greater numbers to, to act as a um, negotiating community to push their party leaders to prioritize women's concerns, which the party may have already stated, but simply not be doing much about, or to actually change party positions. And importantly, um, quotas, unlike a more gradual increase in women's representation over time, tends to uh, increase women's representation across the political spectrum. Whereas when, um, when we see representation increase gradually, oftentimes that's driven by left-wing parties, which have their own targets or other forms of affirmative action for women, or it's part of their ideology. This is not often the case among parties on the right. So in fact, we see quotas often increase um, the ranks of women in right-wing parties, especially. Um, the second mechanism is that women can not only act as a critical mass within their political parties, but influence policies directly as ministers. And the, the expectation here is that a quota can bring in not only added numbers of women in parliament, but over time, these women are likely to be promoted to ministerial portfolios, such as employment, labor, social affairs, gender equality, which have direct responsibility for work family issues. And so they can um, change policy directly through that mechanism. And then finally, the last um, mechanism that I'll talk about is issue salience. 
And this is the idea that gender, uh, the gender quota laws, the debate about the law, media attention to the law, raises the issue of gender equality in politics to the national stage. And this can cue party leaders that it's important to compete on this issue. Um, whether that's for sort of genuine reasons of discovering more about gender and politics and gender equality, or more strategic concerns of um, recognizing a new avenue to gain women voters. Um, and this mechanism is likely to be strengthened the more women come into the party's ranks, so the more visible cues that, that party leaders see um, to remind them of the gender quota law. Okay, so to test this theory, uh, in the book I use a mixed method approach. So this combines a statistical analysis of uh, over 30 years and over 20 advanced democracies um, to look at party, both party level and national level change. At the party level, I'm looking at manifestos and atten party attention to different work family issues in, uh, in party agendas. And at the national level, I look at spending outcomes related to different work family policies, as well as the implementation of the policies themselves, the number of weeks devoted to different types of uh, leave policies. And the basic approach I use uh, for the statistical analysis is a difference and differences approach, where we have countries that both passed a quota law and did not, and we're looking at the change over time, um, comparing the, the before to after quotas and the quota countries to the non-quota countries, and that's implemented uh, via two-way fixed effects. Now, I pair the statistical analysis with uh, qualitative case studies throughout the book. I use two match pair cases, which are um, Belgium and Austria and Portugal and Italy. Um, in both of these cases, one country passed a quota law. So Belgium and Portugal both passed a quota law and the other country had debates about a quota law, but in my period of analysis, didn't end up passing the law. And Italy actually did go on to pass another quota law after my period of study. So I talk about that in the book. So I did field work in all of these countries. I spoke to party leaders, ministers, um, MPs, senators, activists, bureaucrats, these people were non-randomly selected because they could offer me good evidence about the effects of the quota law and about the work family policies um, that relate to my research questions. So throughout the rest of the talk, I'm gonna focus mainly on the case studies, in particular, the cases of Belgium and Austria to give you a sense of how quotas um, actually change work family policies. But I also wanna give you a preview of the quantitative findings here. Um, so I'm going to start with the party level findings, uh, and the figure here is a coefficient plot from separate regressions, um, and it uses data uh, on political party agendas attention to different work family policies. So this is data that I coded with the help of research assistants from the four uh, case study countries from 1990 to 2018. So it's about 30 years of, of data from 23 political parties in countries that both did and didn't pass a quota law. Um, and I find in line with my hypothesis that after a quota law, parties start talking less about family allowances, these cash transfers, child benefits, and they start talking more about childcare and gender equality leave, which is leave that promotes uh, parental and paternity leave over maternity only leave. So um, this is a variable that I define specifically to measure the extent to which leave promotes gender equality. Now this difference is only significant at the 10% level, these other differences are significant at conventional 5% levels. So some initial evidence that parties are changing uh, the configurations of um, work family policies in their agendas. Does this translate into actual policy change? I find that it does. 
So first looking at spending outcomes, um, I find that gender quota laws are lead to less spending on family allowances. Again, in line with theories, um, these cash transfers that can hinder maternal employment, but no overall change to family policy spending. So that difference is being made up elsewhere in the family policy budget. Um, by leave, which also shows no significant change in spending, um, or by childcare, and the childcare data from um, this data set it has some problems, so I don't include it because it has some breaks in the data, um, but it could be that some of this family policy spending is being made up by childcare as well. Um, and this makes sense because the extent to which uh, work family policy promotes maternal employment isn't well measured by the overall level of spending on family uh, family policy or on leave policy, because you can think you can have um, a, a very low paid long maternity leave cost the same as a short well paid parental leave that applies to both mothers and fathers. So I don't necessarily expect any changes and I don't find any there. However, when I look at the implementation of the policy, the actual weeks devoted to different types of leave, I find again in line with my hypotheses that um, quotas shift parental leave shift um, leave policies towards more focus on shared parental and paternity leave over maternity only leaves. Um, so again, this is the measure of the total weeks of paid parental and paternity leave minus the total weeks of maternity only leave. And I find a, a significant increase of about 19 weeks of this leave that promotes gender equality. Um, in the book, I break this down and I look uh, at real, real changes, real policy changes across the five quota countries. I also look at these um, the, as independent um, analyses of um, the effects of quotas on, for example, paternity leave, shared parental leave and maternity leave. And um, I find, again, uh, results in line with my expectations that quotas reduce maternity only leave and they really lead to more of an increase on paternity and shared parental leave. The quotas are shifting work family policy configurations, if not overall levels of spending in the direction of women's preferences. And now just to circle back to the last part of my theory, which was about um, whether quotas will lead to other policy changes on issues that are actually well-defined by left-right um, political dimensions. I find that um, quotas are not linked to any significant change in old age or education spending. These are issues which are actually, you might think education in particular has a, a large gender gap, but they actually um, are characterized by only very small gender gaps. And that's because everyone wants more spending on these issues. So I, I find um, on these issues with relatively small gender gaps, no change after a quota law. And also on health spending and overall social spending issues where we know women do want more spending compared to men, I also find um, no significant increase to spending after a quota law in line with the theory that it's really those issues that cut across political parties and that unite women across parties where we should expect a quota law to um, change policies. Okay, so now I'm gonna get to the case studies and talk a little bit about how this actually happens. Um, and I'm gonna use the cases of Belgium and Austria in particular. So Belgium and Austria are two similar types of welfare states. They're both conservative or corporatist welfare states, historically Catholic. Um, they both had similar shares of women's labor force participation, similar shares of socioeconomic development or levels of socioeconomic development before the quota law was passed in Belgium, but not Austria. The trajectory of um, women's representation in politics was also similar. The trend was also similar in both countries before the quota law in Belgium. But as you can see here in 1999, the law in Belgium was implemented for the first time and there's this big jump 
in women's representation. Another jump occurs before ahead of this election here where the quota law was increased in threshold from 33 to 50%. Um, meanwhile, in Austria, the trend has been more gradual, a more gradual increase in women's representation over time with some bumps here and there. This is a year, when, for example, when the far right party had a, a bad election. Um, so more women came in because there were fewer far right party members. Um, so then what happened to work family policies after a quota law in both of these countries um, where Belgium passed a law, but Austria did not. Okay, so there's a lot of data on this table. I don't expect you to read it all. I'll just talk through some of um, the major changes that occurred in these countries. First, taking Belgium. There was no change to maternity leave in line with the theory. It, um, this policy wasn't being extended um, in either country, um, but there was pretty soon after the quota law was implemented, an extension to uh, mandatory and paid paternity leave, and then consistently um, extensions to paid parental leave. So that um, is making leave um, better paid, extending the, um, the length of the leave, which was also paid, and introducing more flexibility into parental leave options. So Belgium is far from the sort of paragon of Sweden's um, very, very well paid and um, relatively long parental leave, but it's, it certainly can be characterized as moving in, in the right direction for leave that promotes gender equality anyway. Um, and the important thing to note, notice about this table, and the women ministers are in bold, is that women ministers were uh, key protagonists in each one of the major policy changes after the quota law in Belgium. Uh, and that wasn't an accident. It's uh, also the case that women made up the majority of labor or employment ministers after the quota law in Belgium, four of the six um, subsequent ministers uh, for labor employment in Belgium have been women. That wasn't the case before the quota law and it hasn't been the case in Austria either. So women were actually in charge the majority of the time in this portfolio. Now in Austria, um, what you see for paternity leave is a long period of status quo policy stasis where they had significant debates about paternity leave through um, the 2000s, but only managed to pass a right to paternity leave, um, which was unpaid in 2019 at the hands of uh, a woman minister from the far right party who um, pushed the policy through despite the opposition of many of her coalition members in the OVP and FPA. Um, in addition, parental leave changes have um, sometimes resulted in backward steps for women in Austria during this time period. So the big one is in 2002, and that's when um, the FPO, the far-right party, was in government, and a male uh, minister, Herbert Haupt, extended um, parental leave, technically parental leave, but um, mostly taken by women from two to three years and made it a kind of policy mix between a family allowance and a parental leave policy because you no longer had to be previously employed to, um, to, to get these benefits. And so this was widely perceived to be a backward step for, the, for um, gender equality in Austria. It um, made maternity leave very long and, and low paid and actually job protection wasn't guaranteed after the two year mark anyway. And then there were some more positive changes um, at the hands of Christina Marek in particular from uh, the Christian Democratic Party to introduce, they still have this long option, but there's also more options um, that were introduced in 2010 for a more well-paid, um, shorter period of leave that's perceived to be better for working mothers. Okay, so um, 
the fact that women made up most of the ministers for labor and employment and, and that women have um, increased in certain portfolios in Belgium is no accident, as Elf Van Hoof explained to me in an interview. Um, she's a Christian Democrat, and she told me that um, it became very clear after the quota law that there was higher turnover for women candidates and for women MPs than for men. So she said, um, what we see is a revolving door for women. They go in politics, but they're replaced quicker than men. Now, candidate selection is still determined at, at the local party level for many political parties in Belgium. So she was saying that sort of these male local party leaders are replacing women with maybe someone younger, someone in the media who looks more interesting. And so she says, our task now is when the lists are being formed, we say what we already have, we wanna keep because what makes a woman a minister is being already in parliament. So this was a very clear strategy, not just um, for the Christian Democrats, the Flemish Christian Democrats, but for women in different political parties to increase not only the numbers of women in parliament, but in government. And to do this, um, they sponsored two bills which were signed by women across political parties for a quota in government. These bills didn't get anywhere, but it's notable that they were signed by women across political parties. And they also um, engaged in some demonstrations outside of parliament, that's the one you can see here, um, to protest for more women in government and inside the parliament, unfurling banners, um, wearing armbands, et cetera. And so the, some of the signs say, you know, more mothers in government, more aunts in government. They were really pushing for more women in government, again, across party lines. And so I argue in the book that women's added um, numbers gave them strength to, um, to um, have more impactful demonstrations. And that these demonstrations are part of the reason why we see more uh, women in ministerial portfolios after the quota law. Although most of the change was clearly um, directed by the women ministers themselves. So in Belgium, um, as I discussed in the book, many of these policy changes weren't already included in coalition agreements. Um, and ministers do have considerable autonomy to, um, to design and implement policies as was the case um, for many of the policy changes in, I showed you in this table. Um, so I'm, I'm showing you a couple examples of some of the women ministers who um, directed some of these policy changes in Belgium, Laurette Ankelenks, who's on the left and then Freya Vandenbosk uh, on the right. Um, they both in, in media interviews, in um, speeches, et cetera, um, use their own lived experiences as examples and justifications for why, um, for their work family policy priorities. So Loretta Onkelenks, we must investigate how parental leave can be extended. Is your head completely at work when your child's in bed with a high fever? No. And then Freya Vandenbosk, um, who makes a comment about running to the nursery, then the station, then to work. And she's trying to um, highlight the need for more and better high quality childcare. Um, Vandenbosk is a, is a nice example because she became the youngest female minister in Belgium when she was first promoted. Her success was widely attributed to the quota law, um, sometimes unkindly by media. Um, she was a single mother. And she was pregnant when she was a minister. And so she, the changes that she passed extended um, the level of benefits paid, particularly for single parents. And again, sometimes the media was unkind to her about this, calling it convenient that she was legislating um, for a higher level of benefits for single parents. But the basic point here is um, a simple one, which is that the personal is political and that women are bringing up their own lived experiences here. And it's supported by interviews across all the four countries that I visited. Um, and the quote here summarizes this finding of, uh, it's from Sabine de Betun. Again, men support it, but women are driving this agenda. 
And I found this to be the case across political parties that women often sound the same when they're talking about these issues. Certainly it's not always the case. There are some uh, women on the right and far right in particular who think that um, when mo young, mothers of young children should stay home, but I found this less commonly in my interviews and in my case study data. So I'm gonna give you an example from the far right um, in Belgium of this uh, idea. Now in the early 1990s, uh, the far right party in Austria very clearly stated its view that feminism had gone too far, that really, um, the, the best care for children is done by mothers in the household, and that's better than any kindergarten um, or, or childcare facility, et cetera. So I had a clear view that was not about expanding childcare. Fast forward to 2012, after the quota law, more women did come into the far-right party in Austria. Um, they gained leadership roles as Anke Vandermeer did. Um, and the positions of the far-right party on work family policies changed dramatically. This is noted in the manifestos that I coded, and also in speeches like this one um, from Anka Vandermeer, she was a senator who sounds very similar to the Social Democrats I showed you on the previous slide. As a wife and mother of two young children, childcare in my hometown is very close to my heart. Far too few families find a place in childcare. We would like more cheaper and quality childcare. The position changes dramatically. Um, now, what happened in the counterfactual case of Austria, as I mentioned before, they had this um, long period of policy stasis on paternity leave um, and backsliding on implementing this very long, low-paid parental leave option. This was designed by a far-right male minister, um, and he said in the parliamentary debates that it was to stop the erosion of the traditional family um, because he claimed that childcare contributed to drug abuse and violence in society. Um, so again, certainly there are some women who also share these views, um, but I found it less likely um, that that was the case, both in my survey data, my interview data, um, and the case study analysis. In fact, um, as we can see from the table here, the more positive changes for paternity leave and um, well-paid parental leave in Austria have been pushed through by women ministers in Austria as well, um, from the Christian Democrats and from the far-right party, um, Christina Marek, Karmasen, Hardinger-Klein, um, there were just fewer, they were just less likely to be promoted to these ministerial roles absent a quota law in Austria. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up now. Um, my book offers some new evidence that quotas increase the substantive representation of at least some of women's interests. So it's not a panacea. Um, and as I showed, it's not the case that quotas are linked to additional change on all policies that are characterized by a gender gap. But I argue it's especially those policies that tend to unite women across parties and, and cut across party lines, cross-cut party constituencies, where we can expect a change after a quota law. And in the case of high-income OECD democracies, that's these work-family policies. So I find that quotas lead to a shift in the configuration, if not the overall spending levels on work-family policies in line with women's preferences for maternal employment. Um, Quotas make gender salient by giving women louder voices within political parties as added numbers make their negotiating power stronger. Um, access to powerful ministerial roles, as in the case of Belgium, um, and encouraging men to compete more on these issues, which become more normalized in society and in parliament. Um, and then one of the surprising things I found was that actually the identity of MPs um, in, in the cases I looked at mattered quite a bit even in these parliamentary democracies where we assume that your typical MP um, without a portfolio is not gonna be able to shape policy. So the case I didn't talk about here is Portugal where women um, composed 
90% of a parliamentary committee related to work family issues and have pushed through legislative changes directly through that mechanism. Uh, and the book obviously raises a number of additional questions as well um, that I couldn't uh, address in all of my research. Um, the first one is that I focus on work family policies here in, uh, in no small part because we have this nice data which show large significant gender gaps that exist also within political parties, but surveys don't ask about a lot of other issues which might be gendered like violence against women, like pink taxes. So I think that um, it's possible that quotas are also leading to more change on other issues as well. Um, and it's important that we gather better descriptive data on, on what gender differences might exist on some of these issues um, in order to understand the, the further effects of quota laws. The second one that I heard sometimes in my interviews is that um, people argued that quotas um, change the sort of way the arguments are made, the jokes that are told, um, the kind of process through which politics is done. So it would be really interesting to do more study on how quotas affect these informal institutions. You often hear that women lead to more consensuous style. Um, so we don't know a lot about that yet. That would be really interesting to study in the future. And then finally, um, I focus on a certain set of countries here, um, advanced democracies that are characterized by this, this large gender gap on uh, related to the issue of mothers working. I don't find that gender gap persists across medium and low income democracies. And I think that's really important because um, it means that quotas may not affect these policies in a similar way in other countries, at least um, survey data of the general public shows this. In addition, in some of these other contexts, we don't left-right politics. Uh, politics doesn't work in the same way. There's not the same left-right political dimension that is really crucial to my argument. Um, so I think my book is a starting point, but um, there's more thinking to do about how quotas affect policies in other contexts where we need to understand more about what gender differences exist and how those might fit within um, standard lines of party competition in that context. So that's all from me. Yeah, yeah um, hello everyone. I'm Rosie Campbell from King's College London. I'm, I'm the director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership there and a professor of politics. Um, and it's an absolute pleasure to be asked to speak about this book and the fantastic research that it represents. And I have to say, reading it has been for me a real joy. Anna. And so I really, what a treat to be able to put the emails to one side and read this fantastic book. Um, there are so many things about what you've done that I find really exciting and I think has the potential to really set a research agenda for the future and to make real progress in a field that I do think to some extent has stagnated. And I think what you've done is really show us in a concrete, you've operationalized how progress can be made. And I sometimes feel in the subfield that we work in, gender and politics, that there's a lot of criticism of each other for qualitative researchers criticizing quantitative researchers, quantitative researchers criticizing qualitative researchers, and actually a failure to make progress. And what you've done is you've brought different perspectives together and you've shown actually in a holistic way what we can, what we can learn. Um, and I think this book usually would have been written by several people. I think that this has been written by one person is incredible that you have been able to combine all those different skills that you would normally draw on from a team. Um, and I think what's really exciting for me is the way you address this perennial problem about the substantive representation of women. And if we think about the study of gender and politics, it really started with asking the question, where are the women? 
a very important question because they weren't there. And so counting women's bodies in the beginning, just simply how many women are there in positions of power was really important. But actually, scholarship moved on to think about, well, what difference does it make when there are women there? And that's when we got into this really difficult issue of what is in women's interests. And what Anna does so successfully is she says there's no essential set of policies that are in women's interests. There'll only be different interests between men and women when society is organised along gendered lines and that manifests itself in different needs and expectations, which is why I think you handle this so well, because sometimes I think our focus on richer countries in our subfield is often a real problem and a mistake. And yet what you actually do is you illustrate why for this set of questions, it's useful to take this slice, but you set up a method that you could apply exactly the same kind of analysis elsewhere. And I think that's really helpful. And it's a way of progressing a genuinely comparative approach rather than the, let's just ignore the rest of the world. Um, and I think you do that so well, um, partly because you recognize the difference in men's and women's lives in a rich, in rich, um, with rich liberal democracies, which I think account for only about 7% of the world's population live in those sorts of countries, I think. So a very small slice of the world. And of course, in many of the other countries that you mention in your book, where there are different preferences between men and women, actually women are overrepresented in the informal economy. And so the kind of measures that you're describing would, would, wouldn't make any sense. So you, you do this incredible job of carving out a research terrain but actually showing and explaining why your method, why your approach, why your questions apply much more generally. I find that really exciting. And you, you really talk about this problem of political market failure. And I don't think I've heard anybody else use that term to, to describe this gap between what women might want politically and actually what's delivered. And I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. And what are the causes of these, this political market failure? And you talk about the fact that sometimes the differences between men's, men and women, there's an agreement on a lot of issues, but where there are differences, it's not how our politics is organised. It's because women were excluded from politics or have had barriers to entry. Politics has been organised around other issues and these seem peripheral. And importantly, they're often cross-cutting. And so it's hard for the parties to, to make a, a niche. And simply, there's often a failure to recognise. I mean, I think I'm intrigued what's going to happen in the UK over the next um, period, because in the last two elections, there's been quite a big gender gap in the UK for the first time ever, where more a greater proportion of women have voted Labour than men across, you know, over uh, aggregate level. I've spoken to quite a number of senior members of the Conservative Party, just don't know. You know, so it's that there is that translation of the evidence and who, who communicates that. And it's often the feminist activists within the party. And um, so you've shown a mechanism for how that information can be translated. And I really find that exciting. Um, you're dealing with the who, what, when, where and how of um, of how can women be represented? And I think you're using the example of quotas to sort of illustrate what, what, what is actually also a wider set of questions around. You talk about um, factions, ministers and salience. And so all of these, these sort of categories influence how well women are represented and quotas are a mechanism for enhancing each one of those. And again, I think that's why your research speaks to a broader field because are there other, you know, are there other innovations, democratic innovations that could be made that would improve, would, would have, an, have an impact on those three, um, those three um, characteristics that you mentioned? I really think that your, the way you operationalize um, um, maternal employment is very clever 
the fact that you've gone in so carefully and thought about the negative impact of longer leaves um, and, and low paid extended leaves. And you've, it's just so thoughtful. It's so clever the way you've matched the data, the rigorous um, data collection you've come, got, she's gone through, you know, the historical, the comparative, it's just so thorough. Um, and I think, and, and the way that you're able to construct your arguments so logically step-by-step step, because you have done all that groundwork over an extended period, it's very impressive. Um, and I think you're looking at, you've operationalized kind of rhetor 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 rhetorical commitment, action and impact in, uh, in terms of you're looking at party manifestos, you're looking at their commitments, and then you're looking at their actual spending and their actual policy outputs. And again, that's quite unusual. And that's something you can do in a whole book that maybe would be you know, each individual article, if you hadn't pulled this whole thing to together in one place, wouldn't add up. So let's take you through all the stages in that way. And so I think, again, that's why it's a really important book. Um, you made me think about um, what is, you know, so your book is about quotas, but I think it's about bigger questions about representation as well. And so you made me wonder, so one of the, um, these factors that are increased, um, factions, ministers and salients, their impact has increased. How long do you effect, expect the effects of a quota being implemented to last? I think particularly on salience, because as it becomes something that's just part of everyday norms, does that make it harder to, to, to make the inroads? Or actually, is it something that therefore it's always easier to bring to the table? And I think the way you illustrate that these issues are typically um, owned, if they are owned at all, by um, the left, means that the space for feminist activism is often on the right. And then you give this example, the comparison between Austria and Belgium. And it was interesting to me that I think in the um, Austrian case, you were talking about some backsliding that happened. And to what extent would the quota provide some kind of institutional mechanism to protect against that backsliding? Or is it instead really a tool for amplifying in the moment of, of, of um, the institution of the quota? Or is it something that has a longer lasting effect? And then I think I've raised this already, but I'm intrigued to think, are there other mechanisms beyond quotas that can have the same impact? And I think we should be thinking about that. And I was thinking about the UK case study, as that's typically what I write about, and your um, policy failure. And I was thinking about how in the UK there became, um, after the new Labour period, there was a lot of electoral competition around um, gender equality in the workplace, work-life balance. We really saw an increase in access to affordable childcare. And a lot of that was around the fact that new Labour had targeted professional mothers particularly and secured more of their votes. Um, and David Cameron came in as party leader and he recognised that. He was open to the message. He wanted to be the kind of conservative Blair, perhaps. And he was open to that message. Theresa May, also a committed feminist. I'm not saying that progress was in any way rapid, but we were seeing this gradual progress towards greater parental leave, um, greater childcare. And then, of course, we get Boris Johnson, who is not so interested in any of those issues. And if we had had a legislative quota, would, would, that, would that have helped the feminists like Maria Miller inside the Conservative Party to push Johnson in a direction that they were attracted to? I'd like to know your thoughts on that. And then I had another sort of greater projection, um, thinking about British politics, that I would have thought it's in Labour's rational interest at this point, if they managed to secure some kind of coalition government at the next election, to think about proportional representation. Now, I know there are all kinds of reasons why they won't, 
But if they were to, um, is this the moment where actually there is a possibility for a legislative quota in the UK? There's absolutely no reason why the Labour Party wouldn't agree to that, given that more than 50% of their MPs are women, which is often, you know, you, it's a way of sort of pointing out how weak your opponents are. And, and if that is the case, what are you doing right now to communicate this to activists who care about these issues, to show them if a moment, if a moment of opportunity, which is I think what you describe the quota as, it's a moment of opportunity for feminist critical actors. If a moment of opportunity were to manifest itself in the UK, have you got a condensed version of this for someone who has not um, got the, you know, someone who hasn't got the time to, to, to read it in the same extent, that actually explains them what difference it is going to make if they can bring about a legislative quota in the UK. And that's it. I just can't say what a fantastic book it is. It really is a phenomenal piece of work and well done to you. Uh, thanks, Chloe. Thanks, Ben. Lucky. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to Q&A. Um, so unless you wanted to respond to Rosie very briefly, maybe. Just, well, thank you for um, the, the lovely praise, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed the book. You you have an excellent set of questions and comments that are really pushing me to think further about beyond quotas, um, about other types of actions, other types of commitments that could have similar impacts. Um, I really like that you're pushing me to, to do more sort of public impact work also. I think that's really important, um, so thank you for that. Um, and I agree. I mean, I think it's been really interesting to witness uh, the policy stasis in terms of work family issues recently with Boris Johnson, because you're right, we did see childcare um, hours extended under the last conservative government. And already with the, um, the new uh, conservative party leadership competition, we're seeing some women mention childcare. Um, so that's really interesting to me. I think absolutely, if there had been a quota, um, it's quite possible we wouldn't have seen that stasis. But I like the way you're thinking about um, this as, uh, what was the term you used? Um, uh, a sort of um, a institutional mechanism to protect against backsliding. I think it's absolutely, yeah, that's the way I perceive of it in Austria as well. Um, so just thank you for the comments and you've given me such a lot to think about. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Okay, great. So um, does anyone in here have a question to kick things off? And then I'll have a think about the online stuff in the meantime. Right. Okay. Can you wait for the mic? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Anna. Yeah, that was really impressive. And I'm really looking forward to teaching this to my gender and politics students, actually, for a lot of the reasons that Rosie's highlighted. So yeah, thanks for this. I think it it does provide some really helpful ways into thinking about the relationship between descriptive and substantive representation beyond the quota question as well, which is really great. Um, question I was going to ask was about the relevance of stigma, or maybe it's not relevant to the context you've looked at at all. Um, so we know, of course, that in, in some national contexts, there's a stigma attached to women who are elected through quotas that then actually it's claimed at least can have actually a sort of a suppressive impact on the extent to which they're actually willing to. I suppose, act to further women's interests in politics. So I was wondering, is that is this relevant at all to the context you'd looked at? Or maybe it's not relevant at all, in which case I'd be really interested to know why you think that is. I'll go ahead and answer. Um, thank you, Fran. This is a great question. Um, 
Susan Francesquette and Jennifer Piscovall have this great article where they talk about some of these forms of stigma um, and also this idea that um, women can be sort of made to feel like they have to represent women's interests after a quota law, whereas the same um, the same requirement is not often put on men. Um, I didn't find a lot of evidence of this in my interviews in, in my case studies um, that women felt like they were somehow um, seen as a, a quota woman or that they had to uh, legislate on a certain set of policies because of it. I think one of the, for me, one of the most striking findings that came out of my interview research was um, in talking to political parties that had previously opposed the quota law. Um, and, and you see, even in the UK now with the debate about um, this proposal in Wales, um, that some people are tend to be really adamantly against this, this law and make arguments about meritocracy and so on. But what I found um, in my interviews with party, typically right-wing parties, even far-right parties, the far-right party leader in um, Belgium was an example, was that um, actually, they were fine with it after it had been in place for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and even in the case of Portugal, for example, there was supposed to be, um, after I think about 10 years, um, a review of the policy to see, do we still need this? This speaks to Rosie's question also about how long might some of these um, mechanisms last? Um, and they never had that because everyone was perfectly fine with the law. Instead, they actually increased the threshold from 33 to 40%. And that was supported by every political party, nearly, I think, except for the communists. Um, so I found actually parties adapt to this really well. Um, there are some examples that I found where women will sort of claim the quota and as a way of advocating for it, say, yes, I'm a quota woman. I wouldn't be here without the quota, but now I'm a minister. And uh, I'm fine with that. <laughs> so um, and, and in that sense, I think it's uh, really positive news for people who are having these debates now that actually looking forward, um, it becomes very normalized. Great, thanks. We've got two questions online. Do you want to take both of them together? So the first is from Bonnie Magood. Bonnie says, great and important book. Can't wait to read it. Even if the number of women MPs only increases slowly in countries without quotas, is there a way for those countries without quotas to realize the same policy, policy shifts eventually? Or can other factors serve as substitutes for quotas, like a woman Tory PM, even if the UK doesn't pass quotas? And second question is from Sarah Charles. Hi, Sarah. Uh, congrats, Anna, and to Hazel for the cover. I'd like to ask a question about the combined use of quant and qual methods that Rosie says is so hard to do when studying the substantive representation of women. Can you share any examples of how you did this or examples where you couldn't triangulate and what did you then do? Thank you for these questions. Um, great, great questions. Bonnie, um, thanks for being here. Thanks to everyone online for, for watching. Um, this is a, a really important question because these policies are important, you know, not just for women, but for um, men and women working parents. I mean, we are seeing a real shift in advanced democracies now. And um, it, it is the case for um, many countries that dual career couples are the norm and men still face certain gender stereotypes and policies and um, and in the workplace on taking more time at home. So we need more of these policy outcomes to happen to really further gender equality. I saw the new gender gap report had come out 
I think yesterday, which suggested we need another 132 years to achieve gender equality. And so I think absolutely having more women is a start. You don't necessarily need quotas to have that, but parties on the right um, are pretty resistant to doing this on their own through affirmative action measures or their own targets. Um, there are some examples of conservative Christian democratic parties that have had their own quotas in Austria and in Belgium, for example. Um, but certainly on the far right, I know of no example of this. And that's important because these parties are growing. Um, and, and they are at times entering governments now. And as we've seen, when that happens, there can be real backsliding if particularly, it's, I think it's particularly likely if there's not um, a significant share of women in the party. So um, I would say it would be great. And at this point to some of Rosie's comments as well, if we had a, a woman leader um, for, for the next, um, you know, for, for the conservative party in the future. And it's, it, I would say it's probably more likely that these issues would be prioritized and brought up. Um, but I think quotas are a good solution. Um, and one that um, in a way that I, I don't see another reform that would make changes as quickly um, for parties across the political spectrum. Um, Sarah, thank you for your question about our quantitative and, and qualitative methods. Um, but it, yes, it wasn't always easy to triangulate. And I um, often felt like I didn't know exactly what I was doing when putting this data together. Um, one of the interesting things I found was in trying to um, fill in the gaps from um, certain interviews that I couldn't get. So for example, in Italy, as I try to speak to men and women politicians, I think that's important to understand different perspectives, not just to speak to women. In Italy, um, I, I no men politicians would email me back, would answer my phone calls. They didn't want to talk about um, gender or quotas in Italy at the time I was there in, in 2014. Um, so I only ended up speaking to women and mostly women from the left. And so I had to um, undertake more uh, sort of case study research from parliamentary debates, from interviews, from media accounts to understand the points of view of men politicians and of politicians from right-wing parties in Italy, for example. So that was sort of one way I thought about filling in the gap. I also think it's reassuring um, for both methods when we start to see similar findings emerge. And I think that's important to me generally in a lot of my work, I, I feel more confident if I can see, um, if I can see the statistical findings and then I can understand why. Um, and that's where the qualitative data is really nice um, to help you understand you know, why these things happen. Um, so I hope that answers a little bit of your question and, and sort of triangulating the data. Um, I, I didn't find that often quantitative could replace qualitative, but I had to look for different data sources in response to, to gaps in the in the analysis. Great, thank you. We got another question in here, Charlie. Thank you. Um, it, it sounds like a fascinating book. I do look forward to reading it. Um, I have a whole bunch of different questions for you. Um, I was working in the Irish Parliament when the quota law came in, and a couple of things sort of came to mind from what you were talking about. I love this term, political market failure. Uh, I think it really is a, is, is a novel way of thinking about the problem. Um, one thing is, uh, what do you see as the role of quotas in the development and the effectiveness of women's caucuses? Uh, so the quota law in Ireland created a women's caucus that really put things on the doll agenda that didn't exist before. Um, second is you talk a lot about expenditure. 
uh, and especially within health, um, I would have thought that perhaps it's breaking it down into the salient issues. So health expenditure may remain roughly constant, but we talk about reproductive health, we talk about um, cervical check, we talk about breast check, all the sort of things that might have been left on the side until there was a, a more dominant uh, position of women in, in, in legislation. Um, the other thing relates, you mentioned, you know, old white rich men. Um, I'm two of those things. Um, unfortunately, not rich. And um, one of the things is money in politics. And does, does the quota law matter if your political system is awash with interest group money? Um, does, it, does it negate it or how do you mitigate for it? Uh, and that goes to, to uh, Rosie's observation about moving to a proportional representation system versus first past the post and what would that do? Um, and the, the, the final thing is, is, is another economic one, which is I noticed a lot of the language of the far right parties that you had very much focused on the culture wars as opposed to economic issues. Um, and does, does gender quotas pull politics out of those culture wars more into economics? And then when you go into economics, does it have the ability to move the conversation? In the Irish context, in a lot of cases, the, the resistance came from the Department of Finance that had a very accountancy approach to these issues of paternal leave and labor markets and structures of industry, as opposed to having a conversation about rights and labor market participation for women and things of that nature. So those are just some observations and questions, but it sounds fascinating. I really look forward to reading it. Great, thank you. Thanks for coming and thank you for your interesting perspective um, from the Irish Parliament, that's fantastic. Um, Ireland doesn't appear in some of my quantitative data because the quota law was implemented afterwards, which I always thought was a shame because I would like to look at that case a little bit more to see uh, statistically what changes may, we may have observed. Um, in terms of your point about um, the Women's Caucus, that's fascinating. I absolutely observed that it did seem to make um, women's sections in the Belgian context stronger. So the, the major one I talked to was the Flemish Christian Democrats um, and the quota successfully increased women in their ranks significantly, but women across from different Christian Democrats, social Democrat um, and other types of political parties, typically not on the far right, um, do have these women's sections. And I think they're a big part of that factions mechanism. Absolutely. And actually we need better data um, Mickey Kittleson had some data, maybe that's a little bit old now, maybe 20 years old, but it would be great to collect more and better data on the strength of these caucuses and sections, because I agree those are um, a really important mechanism for change. Um, I, I really like your point about more targeted measures of health spending. I think that's really important. Um, again, I were focused on work family policies in a more detailed way because of um, the survey data we have there. Um, and I suspect strongly that women would also um, prioritize um, the particular measures that you mentioned related to, for example, pregnancy, cervical screening, and these sorts of things. Um, so I think it would be fascinating to, to look in more detail at that data, absolutely. Um, does a quota matter in a political system um, that's awash with money? I mean, I think about the United States a lot. Uh, I'm American. And um, the fact that we still lack a federal paid parental leave policy, but we've come very close we're still not prioritizing it. And it was stopped by one man from the Democratic Party recently who refused to back it. Um, so I think it would still make a difference because we 
have be less likely to have <laughs> some of these people in politics. Um, the share of women in parliament in the US still remains fairly low, um, but it can't solve all the problems. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and then uh, some of the questions you have about culture versus economics. The interesting thing I found about work family policies is that parties can justify it in different ways. So you might think it's like a associated with a left wing, um, but, but actually left wing parties have often been criticized for their lack of attention to these issues. Um, and on the extreme left, sort of traditional communist left, the idea that, well, we need to focus on class first, that's gonna solve all the problems. And these concerns of, about sort of um, gender gaps and feminism are secondary and should be solved by class problems first. So left-wing parties have been criticized and right-wing parties have made some big, and center-right parties have made some big progress, Christian Democrats in Germany and Austria on these questions, but they tend to justify it in different ways. And I think they've used economic justifications about productivity, for example, um, sometimes also fertility. Um, to make similar arguments where the left would more often talk about gender equality. So they have different framings for these things. Um, and I guess I don't see any problem with that. Um, I think my, my, um, my concern is really the outcome itself rather than the framing. Um, but it would be really nice to understand more about the motivations behind these framings and what political parties um, think, which sort of which constituencies these political parties think the framings will attract. Great, thank you. Okay, so we're out of time, I'm afraid. Um, well, if you're online, that's it. Thank you for thank you for coming. Um, thank you, Rosie, and thank you, Anna, for your contributions. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. Um, don't forget to pick up a flyer on the way out. And again, you'll be emailed a flyer if you're online. And if you're here, um, please do go and speak to Hazel, the artist, the cover at the back. Um, and I think that's it. If you wanted to watch it again, for whatever reason, I don't know what makes people tick, then it will be available online in due course. Um, but congratulations again, Anna, for the publication of this excellent book. Um, really looking forward to reading and teaching it as well. And if you're here, please come to, I think, 4.5 or 6. It's not totally clear um, for some, no doubt, very average sandwiches. So thank you very much. Cheers.